Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today after a week of heavy rain, clag on the tops. We've come way out west, way out to one of the furthest reaches of the Lake District and I'm in the company as ever of author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Dave, this is an interesting spot to be. Quite a while since I've been here, but we're on the flanks of a fell that adoring Wainwright guide collectors know about because of its stash of coins. Well, actually, it was just one coin. Oh, the treasure. The treasure on Lankrig Semit Cairn, where he hid at half a crown. We're on the great flanks of the fells between Ennerdale and Wasdale, and the great expanse of khaki-coloured fell rises before us. Just in the valley below us, there's a really important bridge. We're going to go and visit that later today, but we are here, Mark, and actually there's a bit of a clue in the background if you can hear a quad bike. We're here because we're on the farm, Mark, and we're on a very specific farm. Where are we today, and who is our guest? Our guest is Will Rawlin, who farms here at Farthwaite with his son, who has the farm in Ennerdale, Hollins, and his family's been in this greater setting for perhaps 500 years. The Rawlings, one of the all-time great Cumbrian farming families, as you say, this huge heritage. It's that that we're going to be leaning into today, Mark. We're 110, I think, episodes young or old. And what we've never done, although we've covered plenty of farming in Country Strides past, we've never specifically dedicated an episode to the Herdwick sheep. And that is today's subject. We're going to be talking with Will, who is the chairman of the Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association, about this iconic Lake District sheep breed. We can talk about the management of the breed, what makes a good herdwick, its association with this landscape, the management techniques, the hefting that binds it to the land. And we'll ask that question, how is the herdwick now? Is it in a good shape? A lot to talk about, and I hope we get to talk about this wider landscape. Bit of dialect chat wouldn't be a bad thing. I hope that Will can unlock some of the names that have intrigued me for quite some time. Fabulous. Well, Will's over there. Just stop the old quad bike. So let's go and start today's country stride and go and meet Will Rawling. We've made it to Western Lake District, away from the coastal fringe. We've come up into the hills a little bit. It's been a a wet morning and a wet early afternoon, but it's stopped raining, which is wonderful. And uh, we're up on the edge of the common, Kinnerside Common, on a farm called Farthwaite. And I'm in the company of the farmer here, Will Rawling. Perhaps, Will, you can give us a bit of a feel for your connection with this amazing landscape. Yeah, well, I've been farming in the Lake District since I was a child, born onto the family farm down in the Ennerdale Valley. The family's been involved in the Ennerdale Valley for all centuries, really, back to the 1500s, basically in the same place. Hollins Farm at Ennerdale, this farm up here, 
which borders Guineaside Common, very much a Herdwick farm. They do go out onto the common in front of us here, the highest point of which is Lankrig, although this common is actually open all the way back to uh, Wasdale Head and beyond for that matter. Far distance there, just looming out of the mist, we can see the screes at Wasdale and on a sunny day we can see um, Scarfell Pike. We are actually right on the very western edge of Lake District National Park. The boundary's about uh, 200, 300 metres behind me, actually. We're the sort of uh, most westerly point of the Lake District National Park until you get down to the southern end where Black Coombe runs almost to the sea. Well, we're going to learn a good deal, I hope, today about the management and the life of a Herdwick sheep. Will, where are you going to take us to give us a bit of an insight into your management of this setting? Well, we can probably just walk across the field here a little bit and look down into the River Calder, into the Calder Valley, one of the Lake District valleys that uh, people never really talk about much, but it did lend its name to Calder Hall nuclear site, so that's one uh, claim to fame, I guess. But if we walk over there, we'll be looking down to the edge of our land where our land joins the common, and we can uh, talk a little bit about the type of landscape, the way we manage the landscape, and the role that our Herdwick sheep play in managing that landscape as well as providing us with a production-based income. Very good. Well, we'll look forward to paddling our way through. It's a bit damp at the moment. As I look just to the north, a cluster of tractors, a pen with uh, some yows in it, and beyond that, up to the left, a flock, as it were, of dark-wooled herdwicks, I think they've just uh, been dipped, but they've got their heads down, they're eating uh, grass, that's their instinct. So we've got the sense of the Herbic sheep here. Will, where do Herdwicks derive? Uh, Herdwicks derive, really, um, we think, from the Viking settlers. The uh, Vikings, although their reputation for pillaging and so forth, actually most of them were, were farmers, they came across and settled. And these Herdwick sheep, we're reasonably confident, have at least some of their heritage in those uh, early Viking settlements. We do know from DNA testing that Herdwick sheep are related directly to the northern pintail sheep, the northern European pintail, which was very much a shape of the Viking era, um, was very much a shape of the Viking territory as well. Northern Europe, Netherlands, Denmark. Um, we also know that the pintail sheep was also the distant relative of the Texel sheep, which many people will know about. Texel sheep and Herdwick sheep are absolute polar opposites, but they are very closely related from a DNA point of view. And they've been around in the Lake District for as long as anyone can remember. All Lake District records refer to, at some point to a Herdwick. But the word Herdwick itself is actually uh, quite interesting. It's not necessarily the name of the sheep, it's the name of the pasture that the sheep grazed on. So a herd wick is a wick is a grazing pasture and a herd is obviously a collective noun for a group of grazing animals. Although we would now call sheep collective noun we would use now would be a flock. We still refer to a herd of cattle. So the word herd wick, if we think about it, it doesn't really give that sheep any placement. It doesn't necessarily say where it's come from. Unlike many other breeds like the Swaledale or the Suffolk, are the two very obvious ones. But obviously now the Herdwick sheep itself has adopted the name Herdwick and people, when we talk about Herdwicks, people bring to mind the sheep, not the Herdwike, Herdwick, that was the pastures that they sheep grazed. And the sheep to which Mark referred earlier there, they're all 
hogs, Herdwick hogs, which are very dark in colour. They've just been recently weaned from their mothers as their mothers prepare for the winter period and try to put on a little bit of uh, condition to carry them through the winter. So we've recently weaned these lambs, taken them away from their mothers, and they cease to be lambs when we wean them and they become hogs. And the word hog also has a great association with Scandinavia as well. We run a hefted flock on here of around about 800 out on the common. Hefted means that they stay on their own territory, they're very territorial. Without that territorial instinct, we wouldn't be able to farm the sheep on the fell because there's nothing to stop them wandering to the other side of the Lake District if they chose to. Well, we'll part the hefting, which is quite a fundamental element of this whole story, and I'm rather intrigued by the word Herdwick in the fact that they outwinter, so they should almost be Hardwicks. But the breed has been refined over recent centuries. There are particular instances of farmers who have contributed to this and and locations that are associated. I remember we had an episode with Angus Winchester about Gatescarth where there the tups were developed. But there are other instances, Will. Yes, absolutely. Any form of sheep breeding, but maybe Herdwick's uh, more than others, have adapted to modern market needs so Originally, Herdwick sheep were kept primarily for their wool. And although the wool is a pretty coarse uh, type of fibre and of relatively low value, at one point it was suggested that the wool clip from a flock of sheep was sufficient to pay the farm rent. The wool was by far the most important uh, product up until the mid-1900s, so around the end of the Second World War. The emphasis changed rather. Wool became less important as synthetic fibres became more available for people. And because Herdwick wool was of low value, it's now almost worthless, although we do find niche uses for it. But as the meat from the sheep became more important, people have refined the breed. It's all market-facing. It's about producing something that the marketplace wants. So things have been refined and developed over the years. Herdwick sheep, if we go back three or four centuries didn't look anything like the shape that we have now. They had very woolly heads. Some of the ewes had horns. We touched on Gatesgarth there. The valley head farms, the farms in the top of most of the valleys, were always the farms that had higher numbers of Herdwick sheep. They were the places where all the research and development was taking place, which now we call it research and development. In times gone by, it was where folks sorted things out. The farms like Seathwaite, where the Edmondson family have been for years in the top of Borrowdale, That was always a place where people would go to seek out tups, tips, rams, because if they can manage to live at Seathwaite, they can probably manage to live anywhere else and they're probably going to breed well. We might look at uh, the Valley Head farms in Wasdale, so Wasdale Head, Burnthwaite and Middle Row in the top of Wasdale. Again, farms where there were bigger numbers of sheep running on the harder fells, the harder, higher fells. And as we moved down the valleys a little bit, the land did tend to get slightly better. So... The sheep that were bred on the harder fells at the top of the valleys did migrate down the valley by people would buy them, take them onto their farms further down the valley where they would interbreed them with their own hefted flocks to actually give us this Herdwick sheep that carry all the attributes we're looking for. So an ability to survive on grass alone, an ability to survive pretty much whatever the climate throws at them and an ability to last a long time, which is obviously very important when we have only got a limited number of sheep Living on a hard fell, we don't want them to be uh, moving on from the fell every two or three years. So we all like a Herdwick sheep that is capable and durable enough to remain on the fell until it's five or six year old. 
and that has been one of the primary uh, features that we've tried to breed into the sheep over the years. It's an ongoing thing and certain farmers, certain guys who are really talented at what they do, and it is a talent being able to understand the genetics and retain all that information in your head. I'm not one of them, I would say. I'm not looking for high-quality tups. I'm looking for animals that do the job for me. But some of these guys who are really, really good at it have refined the breed to a, a level now where some of the tups that are being bred, they've almost got them perfect in terms of satisfying the breed standards that were originally set out way back in uh, 1916 when the association was formed, the Herdwick Sheep Breeds Association was formed. There was a sort of rough code of practice, a set of standards laid down by uh, a group of more noted farmers at the time, of which my great-great-grandfather was one. But the Herdwick in principle, its genetics, its DNA, its basic structure as a sheep has not changed significantly since centuries. It's just the fine details that have been refined. I see these gimmer hogs spread out over this pasture over to my left, and they have a certain uniformity about them. Can you sort of give us a bit of a feel on look of a really healthy, vigorous-looking uh, herdwick? What does it look like? At its absolute peak, which it's probably going to achieve at a three- or four-year-old, we would be looking for is a sheep with regular conformation, so a really good carcass, a carcass that can carry a bit of meat. We need four good legs on it, and it needs one of them on each corner of a good, strong carcass. And although the wool is not worth a lot, we're still looking for an animal that has a very weatherproof coat. So the wool is important, not as a commercial product, but it's very important to the sheep. The other thing we'll be looking for is an alert outlook, bearing in mind that these guys aren't going to get any help from me or anybody else when they go back up onto the fell. They have to have a local intelligence. They have to understand uh, what the immediate area can offer them and what problems it might present them as well, so that they do have a survival intelligence, yeah, and a very much a survival instinct. They're also slightly different to many other sheep in as much as they're not so reliant on flocking together. They have an independence in many ways, but they do still flock together. But each of these individual sheep will have its own identity. It'll have its own particular place that it enjoys being, and it will conduct itself in a way that might not be uh, consistent across the whole flock. They have a little bit more character about them, shall we say. We're looking for a coat colour that ranges from a sort of slaty grey, a light slaty grey, to almost a dark blue-grey. The colour tends to change, actually, with the habitat that they're in. A lot of the fleece pigment is actually directly derived from the grazing that they're eating, so they can change colour throughout the year as well. I didn't know that. That really yeah, is interesting. Can. It's rather like when we did lichen. Different colours of lichen come from what the rock they're sitting on. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's true with the sheep. Yeah, to an extent the sheep do that. We think, or at least I think, I'm not sure if anybody else thinks this, but I think there's probably some kind of predator protection involved in this as well because if they take on the colour of the habitat, they are to some extent camouflaged. And although we don't have wolves and major predators anymore, like wolves and bears and lynx and so forth, in the past it was probably quite useful to blend in. But we've got a big carcass shape of a particular colour. It's got an alert nature. It's got all these uh, instinctive uh, features about it. Its head needs to be fairly erect. It needs to be alert. We would like to see it having ears that aren't floppy, like we see on some shape. We would like not erect ears necessarily, but we would like ears that are at least supporting their own weight. Ideally, we would be looking for the areas of the shape that haven't got wool on them 
the area around the genitals and underneath the front leg, we would be looking for those areas to be almost pure white. It might have horns if it's a tup, it doesn't matter if it has. With the females, absolutely no evidence of horns at all, which is again is, is unusual for a sheep breed to have horn sheep in the males. Absolutely no horns at all in the females. That doesn't happen in many sheep breeds. We also will be looking for a sheep that has got the ability to do the job that it's been bred for. So if it's a tup, we're looking for two good testicles. Testicles allow it to impregnate up to 50 or 60 years in a season. Some of the fitter and bigger tups will get round to doing 100. But with the females as well, we're looking for a sheep that has got a good udder, so it's got the ability to produce milk. And actually what we need in a Herdwick sheep is the ability of that sheep to take the energy from sunlight into the grass to photosynthesise that produces sugars within the grass. The sheep consume the sugars, turn it into energy and protein, turn it into meat, turn it into milk, rear the lambs, cycle goes on. So we're not supplementing their sheep. It is everything they're getting comes from nature without us having to spend half the day looking after it. It looks after itself and it looks after me at the same time. Well, that was fascinating stuff. I'm looking at Lankrig and its khaki tone. We'll walk a little bit further to get okay. a bit more of a story. Right. Well, we've come down the bank to a fence that's just at the edge of the pasture and the ground drops away in front of us to the east into the Calder Valley. And it's a quite inspiring view. There's tree growth in front of us, which is showing the signs of autumn. There's a few herders just tucked away in the, in the burrow below us. There's a drumlin and uh, the valley of the Calder is clearly there. And you can see up to our east, the rising banks of Lankrig. Away to the north, I can see Grike. To sight to our right downstream is the bridge that I think many people will have heard of. Fell walkers know of uh, Matty Ben's bridge on the map, it's Monk's Bridge. This is sort of one of those features that, Will, you could give us a bit of a story of. What was the purpose and the origin of that bridge? The bridge was originally built by the monks of Calder Abbey, hence the name Monk's Bridge. Um, we're standing here all over on Farthwaite Farm. The place next door is actually called Simon Kell, a name which is derived from another monk, a guy called Simeon. I didn't know him. Uh, <laughs> it refers to Simeon's well over the years has been adapted to uh, Simon Kell. And further across, on, still on our own land, we have another little place called Roger House. That was Brother Roger. He was another monk from the Calder Abbey area. Brother Simeon and Brother Roger would come up in the depths of winter and uh, they were the guys that actually were the pioneer shepherds up here. They were the fellows that looked after these uh, Herdwick sheep. And the Herdwick sheep we're looking at down below us here, their bloodlines will go back to those periods, back to those monastic flocks that existed. And for a while, Monk's Bridge was very important. We mentioned earlier, didn't we, how important wool was. Wool was the biggest uh, financial attribute the British Isles had, really. The Lord Chancellor sat on the wool sack. And still does, I believe. Speaker of the House of Lords now sits on the wool sack. It's probably not Herdwick wool that he wouldn't sit on it very long. It'd get a little <laughs> bit itchy. But Monk's Bridge would originally have been built partly to be able to cross the River Calder, which at times can be quite a, a nasty uh, river. When it's in flood, it can be quite uh, scary, and it does flood frequently. And also pack horses, it would be used for pack horses, and they would, they would be taking their wool down there, and we're led to believe that these little places that were established further up the valley, higher up the side of the slopes, 
where the, the land was cultivated. It was actually cultivated to grow grain, probably in those days millet, for the monks. And they liked to be up a little bit, a bit more altitude, because there was less uh, insect pests at these sort of levels. So we understand from historians that um, these places were granges, so places where they grew grain. That would be a haver, perhaps? Uh, maybe haver, might have been haver oats, yeah. Probably millet going back that far. Millet and rye, probably. At one time, pretty much all the wealth of England was owned by the church, and the church still owns quite a lot of land, particularly in the uh, in the areas where wool production was the primary uh, employment at the time. Henry VIII didn't agree with that, so he sorted them out. Much of the land that was owned originally by the monastic estates, we have Calder Abbey here, which was a satellite of Furness Abbey, along with St. Bees Abbey. St. Bees Abbey was also a satellite of Furness Abbey. But Henry VIII sorted them out. He decided that uh, they should be abolished. Then much of the land fell into uh, into private ownership and these little farmsteads started to be established as family units rather than as part of an extended monastic system. The sheep then came into private ownership and that was really the establishment of the modern Herdwick farming system that we understand now. So it started with the Vikings. The monastic system adapted it to their needs since then, it's primarily been farmed on a commercial basis, using Herdwick sheep as a way of generating income, usually for a small family. Another thing we have seen latterly is that many of the small farms are becoming amalgamated, made into bigger units. We, my son and myself, my wife, we now farm on what used to be uh, seven different little farms many, many years ago. Many of them were amalgamated long before mine, my father or my grandfather's time. Everybody knows Monksbridge by its nickname, Matty Ben. Um, yeah, well, there's two trains of thought on this. Most people might suggest that Matty Ben was a lady that lived in the farmhouse that I now live in. But I've looked back in some of the older flock books where we record the Herdwick earmarks in the, oh, flock, yes, the, the flock books. Guide. The Shepherd's Guides, yeah. And there was, at one point, a guy called Matthew Ben lived at Farthwaite Farm, so I would suggest that Matty Ben is named after the guy Matthew, unless his wife was called Matilda or something, we never know, do we? <laughs> never know. Yeah. Never know. One way or another, it's named after someone that had, at some point resided at Farthwaite Farm. Quite. And it's always been a way of accessing Kinnyside Common from the enclosed land of Farthwaite I was going to touch on one or two of the names that I can see here. Right at the head of the valley, to the north, beyond this valley, in fact, is Greik. Mm-hmm. What do you understand by that name? Uh, from our point of view, in dialect, if we're talking about a Greik, we're talking about a deep gully. So what some people might call a ravine, uh, we would refer to that as a Greik. And Greik itself, although we're looking at the uh, southern side of it, is quite grassy and smooth. On the front side, where it's been in the past heavily glaciated, it is host to two hanging valleys, where the the front of the mountain's been truncated, it's been chopped off by the glacier, causing the water to cascade down the front and create two big ravines down the front of it. One's called Bengil, the other one's called Galegil. If you look on the map, you see the main tributary to Calder is called Wormgill. What do you Mm -hmm. think that means? Ah, yeah, Wormgill's a tributary of the River Calder, but it's actually almost as big a watercourse in its own right. And both Wormgill and the River Calder have a very short catchment, but both of them are quite meandering, quite wiggly, 
Um, worm gill, we think, is named worm gill simply because it looks like a wiggly worm. It's got a lot of oxbow legs. It's very wiggly. I notice on the map also a mountain pinfold there. Mm-hmm. If we look down into the bottom of the valley here, we can see a, an old stone shapefold. That shapefold is actually a washfold. Quite. So okay. in the past, although my guys at Elk may have been dipping sheep to take the ticks and winter parasites off them to make their lives a little more comfortable... In the past, before we had chemical dips that we could treat infestations on sheep with, the old farmers would gather their sheep into these washfalls, which are on the side of the rivers. This one's right on the side of the river Calder. And it's beside a dub, what we would call a dub, which is a deep pool. And on that sheepfold down there, there's actually a stone chute, so like a passageway that goes into the river. And in the past, the old guys would get their sheep in the river, give them a good wash, that was the best they could do for them, so effectively they were giving them a bath. That was one purpose for a stone shapefold. The pinfold that you refer to, uh, Mark, there, a pinfold was a shapefold, again, stone-built, usually at a central location, where farmers would take stray sheep and leave them in the pinfold for the neighbouring farmers to collect. Some people call them pinfolds, some people call them penfolds. And obviously a pen is somewhere where you keep animals and a fold is also somewhere you keep animals. And in the past there would be local bylaws which required you to remove your sheep after a certain length of time. Otherwise you're basically fined if you left the sheep in there. And probably that was from a welfare point of view. They didn't want anybody leaving sheep in such a confined area for any length of time. I'm not sure who actually knew how long your sheep had been in there. Did you have uh, shepherd's meats here? We didn't really have shepherd's meats, that's why we have pinfalls. The reason shepherd's meats existed in the past was all the farmers knew that at a certain time, a certain day of the year, the other farmers would be at a certain place. So everybody went to the same place, usually got as drunk as a skunk. They actually swapped their stray sheep around at shepherd's meats, that's how shepherd's meats existed. People still do return sheep to shepherd's meats. Well, I'm blown. There's lots of lovely, intriguing names on these fells, uh, Latabarrow, Boathow, and one that caught my eye and I've noticed on the map, and I've actually been to it, is Samson's Bratful. What on earth is a Bratful? A Bratful is how much you could carry in your apron. A brat is an apron. People wore brats for different reasons. Many of the ladies of the house would wear brats to uh, protect their clothing when they were cooking or washing or scrubbing the floors or chopping a pig up. They did all sorts of things, the ladies of the house. But some of the guys wore brats as well. Some of the people not necessarily involved in farming, but the blacksmiths, the joiners, the stonemasons, possibly the guys building the walls would be wearing brats. Your bratful was how much you could actually carry about in your apron. It's really interesting, this is an aside, but I was in Norway. I was in a, a valley in Norway called Hempstedal. And I was walking up the street and I noticed a street sign which had two kids running out of it like we have children at, you know, school sign. And underneath was written Bairns Laken. And in Cumbrian, Bairns Laken means children playing. So that term has come directly from Norse. That's come from Old Norse. And actually... I made a point of going onto a little farmstead there and having a conversation with one of the farmers who couldn't talk English and I couldn't, obviously couldn't talk Norwegian. But I found that if I spoke really broad dialect, he could understand what I was talking about. By talking broad dialect and him talking broad Norwegian agricultural dialect, we could pretty much make ourselves understood to each other, much to my wife's amazement. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Well, that's been fascinating uh, interlude there. Anyway, we'll wander a little bit further and we'll explore how you run the sheep. Well, fortunately, since we started the podcast, there's been no rain. But actually, the wind has picked up quite a strong southwesterly wind over our shoulder. Well, we're looking down, still looking into the Calder Valley, looking at that great expanse of uh, Lancrig, uh, Kinnerside Common, looking up towards Boathouse and uh, Latterbarrow. But um, I want to touch on, Will, the three-way relationship, as I see it, between the in-by land that uh, clusters around the farm and the open fell and the all-important Herdwick itself. Can you describe the relationship of those three things? Yeah, well, the three things are interdependent, uh, Mark, yeah. Kinnyside exists, all commons exist, as something that predates the Enclosures Act. The uh, commons were owned by the Lord of the Manor, effectively, but all the parishioners had a right to graze on it. And as times develop, not all of the parishioners have a right to graze on it anymore. But the majority of farms adjoining Kinnyside Common do have rights to graze on the common. As we mentioned earlier, many of the farms have been amalgamated, so we've gone from 25 graziers down to 14. I think many people appreciate the word heft and hefting. Uh, yeah, well, what we understand as hefting within Herdwick circles, hill farming circles in general, doesn't necessarily refer exclusively to Herdwick's. Hefting is actually a territorial instinct that sheep have uh, within them to stay on a particular patch of land. So a flock of sheep will have their own heft and that flock of sheep will stay in that area, that's their territory. Like a wild animal establishes a territory, a flock of sheep will establish a territory. And that territorial instinct is passed maternally from mother to daughter. And this is why we always have to breed our own replacements. We can't bring foreign sheep if we want, into our sheep flocks because they're not fixed to the land. They don't understand the hefting system. And hefting was established originally around balance. So a flock of sheep, which tend to stick together to some extent, would not stray onto another area of land that was grazed by another flock of sheep. So if we have the balance across the, the whole of the Lake District, then the sheep hefting system remains quite strong. One analogy I like to use is if you have a, a bath of water and I take a bucket full of water out of the middle of the bath, we don't finish up with a bucket-sized hole. The water will actually fill in the hole and shape hefting reacts in exactly the same way. So where we say shape being removed, possibly for conservation grazing purposes or because the farmer's decided he no long, longer wants to farm them, that will leave effectively a vacant lot on the fell and the shape from the surrounding heft will slowly move into that open grazing and they will fill in the gap. But the hefting system is about balance. It's about one flock of sheep stopping another flock of sheep getting onto its territory. You touched on the environmental schemes, which have been in effect for the last 30 or so years. Can you give us a little bit of a feel for the effects of these and the changing uh, circumstances that they have caused? It is a difficult one. I'm sure the government uh, department, Natural England, which is tasked with uh, some habitat recovery and basically keeping the landscape in the way that it should be, or in some cases mending the damage that were caused by the previous support systems, which were more about food production after the Second World War that were put in place to try and feed a hungry nation. And they were possibly partly responsible in some areas 
for overgrazing where farmers were encouraged to keep stock that perhaps the areas couldn't really support. But since the late 80s, 90s, the emphasis has changed significantly from food production, although we still do produce high quality, good quality food and plenty of it, and that's an important thing, that's why I get out of bed in the morning. As well as that, we are now tasked with delivering environmental management services effectively, and we're paid to do it, but I make no apology for getting paid to do that because it actually involves quite a lot of knowledge and quite a lot of skill in order to do it. You're actually paid to take your sheep off the common? What we're actually paid to do is to reduce our flock numbers to levels that Natural England, Natural England being in our situation one person who comes and has a look, consider the right numbers to graze the common. Although we're removing sheep from the common, we're not necessarily getting rid of those sheep. What we're doing is rotating the, the number within the flock that are on the fell at any one time. So the flock remains constant in our situation. At certain times of year, we're required to take some of them off the fell. We'll take some of them off for a period, and then we'll put them ones back and take some more off so that they're all still experiencing the fell. They're all maintaining their territorial nature, they're all still retaining their hardiness, they are still being regionally adapted. That's how we do it. In some situations, farmers have been required to remove sheep from the fells. Consequently, those sheep have gone down into lowland pastures and become a different type of sheep. They're still herdwicks, but they're maybe not quite as uh, suited to grazing the fells as they have been in the past. There is this factor that if your neighbour, let's say, chooses not to exercise their common rights, that has a, an immediate effect on the nature of the fell itself. You uh, cited the bathwater syndrome, as it were. On a common, we all have to agree to a particular outcome in terms of environmental management. And some people do choose to remove all their sheep because it's maybe more lucrative, financially better for them to take all their sheep off and get a higher support payment than it is to continue farming them on the fell. This is usually as a result of someone perhaps a little bit older and getting uh, it's becoming a bit of a challenge for them. Maybe they haven't got any sons and daughters to succeed them, so consequently there's no real uh, incentive to continue grazing. But the effect of that is that those of us that continue to graze, those of us that choose to be the active graziers, the people who are managing the landscape up there, have to take up the slack. And the void that is created by someone removing their sheep does affect the hefting system. If we get to a point where everyone is removing their sheep and we're left with only a few die-hard guys maintaining the intrinsically important systems, we will find ourselves in a position where those of us left cannot manage it because the sheep will simply migrate to other parts of the fell. Sheep, like any other animal, will always go to the place that is the most tasty. It's always going to go to the most palatable areas of the fell. So if we remove the hefting system, some of the areas that perhaps need grazed because um, the coarse vegetation is becoming dominant and consequently suppressing growth of any other species, we find that it's really difficult to keep grazing animals on those areas because there isn't sufficient hefting pressure to keep them in those areas. So what we find is, although we still have a, a slightly fragmented type of hefting system on Kittyside, we're finding that we've got probably the same number of sheep on the palatable areas and the areas that really need to be grazed from a conservation point of view are the areas where sheep don't go to. Natural England's solution to this was to put cattle out onto the fell with the uh, 
thinking that the cattle would go and eat the coarse grasses off and consequently create a bit of more diverse habitat by allowing the species underneath to become more more dominant. What we've found is that the cattle go to the same places as a sheep because it's nice and tasty, it's more palatable, and consequently we've got a mosaic now of quite uh, healthy, diverse habitat, lots of different species out there, but we've also got areas that are being completely dominated by gorse, bracken, and melina nardus type grasses that people trip up over when you're walking on the fell. And those type of grasses are so dominant and create such a thatch of vegetation that the things that we would like to see growing through them can't exist. You touched on the impact of those who got right on the fell not actually exercising it. There's also the away wintering where the Herdwicks go to the Solway Lowlands or the Eden Valley. That also impacts on the very nature of the breed itself. You're absolutely right, Mark. Um, One of the reasons people do this is because many of the uh, stocking density calculations are based on on an annual average. So if people remove sheep in winter, it allows them to graze more in summer. That's one of the reasons. The other reason is that there are quite a lot of pressure put on some of the farmers to remove their stock from the fell in the winter. The payments are good. They're basically left with little option other than to take their sheep off. The unintended consequence of this, and it is unintended, I don't think the conservation groups really meant to do it, that sheep that are not on the fell in the winter, sheep that have been born bred and managed to stay on the fell all the winter if they go down into the lowlands for those winter periods they actually thrive they actually flourish they do really really well they become much bigger consequently they need more to eat the bigger the shape the more it needs to eat but one of the biggest problems is that those sheep lose that hefting ability and they lose that hardiness they're basically becoming softer because they're not having to fight as hard to eke out an existence in becoming softer as well they become fitter therefore they produce more eggs consequently more of those eggs get fertilized and we're seeing more and more Hedwig sheep having twins and increasingly having triplets which is not something we would like we want one lamb so that that lamb can go back to the fell with its mother and the fell can provide sufficient vegetation of sufficient nutrition to allow that ewe to produce sufficient milk to rear one lamb we know for a fact that it can't rear two lambs because the grazing on the fell is not nutritious enough. So we have to find somewhere else for them to live. I, the farmer, then have to look after their sheep better. And there's two ways I can do that. I can fertilise my in-by land to make it grow more grass. We don't want to do that. It's too expensive, not natural, not nature-friendly. We don't want to do that. We can buy in concentrate feed to feed these animals, but most of that soya has come from Argentina and Brazil, so I don't want to do that either. Those sheep that have got two lambs, because they've been away to winter, will have to stay on my in-by fields, on my fenced land, up until about the middle of July. Consequently, they've eaten all my grass. They're not doing habitat on my in-by land a lot of good. They're not doing the sheep's hardiness a lot of good. And I've got an extra lamb, but actually, by the time I've paid for the cost of looking after it, I'm no better off financially. So we would much prefer that our traditional systems of herdwick sheep living on the fell, wintering on the fell, coming in, one lamb, quick turnaround, back on the fell, everybody's happy. The systems we operate have evolved over millennia. We go back to Brother Simeon and Brother Roger again, don't we? And it probably existed before them. 
But in the last 30 years, we have seen more intervention, more interference, probably well intended, but maybe not with the desired outcomes than has happened for many, many generations previously. One thing we have done in terms of conservation management, which we only did really because it didn't impact too much on our sheep grazing, because that is what Kinnyside Common is about. But we have fenced off a few areas. We're standing here looking at one on the other side of the valley. We've actually planted quite a number of trees. In fact, we've planted 45,000 trees, over 76 hectares of land. We've planted those trees in areas that we would prefer our shape not to be in, really. Conveniently, those were areas as well that actually helped protect the riparian corridor, so they helped protect the riverbanks of the River Calder as well. I think what we as farmers would like to see happen would be that we all sit down together we work out how we might achieve the environmental outcomes that are being suggested without interfering too much with the way that we go about our business. Most of us would like to see a system that pays us by results. So if we're delivering, pay us. If we're not delivering, don't pay us. One of the downsides of starting later today is it is becoming sort of dusky. <laughs> you must have long memories of being in this area because your family, in general terms, have been here for eons. Can you tell me a little bit about your earliest memories of being here? Yeah, our family have been around for eons, as has many of the other Lake District families. I'm not sure whether we've got a tremendous affection to the land that we farm or it just demonstrates a distinct lack of ambition. I'm not sure which. I would like to think it's the former. Some of my early memories are uh, living on the farm, feeding pet lambs with a bottle, um, walking around the, the lambing fields with my dad on a beautiful April evening, making sure everything was OK, pinching his walking stick. It was a, an idyllic uh, childhood, really. We still had cart horses when I was a kid. I actually stayed on at school a little longer than some of my uh, contemporaries. Went on to agricultural college, but I was really keen to get back to the farm all the time. I spent as much time on the farm as I could. I've always been very interested in the sheep. Um, I've always been quite interested in the Herdwick sheep, particularly. You know, I can remember in the very early days getting dragged around the sheep pens by sheep when I was trying to emulate my father and the other farm workers by trying to catch sheep and put them in a the dipping tub skinning my knees on the cobbles. It was the, the type of upbringing that only exists in period dramas now, I think, but I grew up doing this, and I'm still doing it. I can remember when, you know, in my early teens, probably early 20s, I can remember when farming was by far the thing that everyone talked about. It was all about, have you gathered your shape? Have you dipped? Oh, what sort of lambing time have you had? Have you clipped yet? All of these things. Everybody was talking Cumbrian dialect. And when we went into the pub... The whole of the crack was about farming. It was about sheep farming. If we go to the pub now, we probably smell a little bit of sheep and we have to sit on our own, <laughs> which uh, I think that in itself has been possibly one of the things that I've found the most challenging, the fact that we are now not necessarily part of the community. We are somebody who is in that community without really being at the forefront of it. Life changes Nothing remains the same, but I do feel it's a great shame. If my grandkids can't have the same memories that I have of being a little toddler trailing about after my dad, I can remember going up the road 
on the back of the tractor with my dad where we were going fencing or we would be going to Mendelandrain or something. And he would think absolutely nothing if a farmer came the other way on his tractor. They would stop in the middle of the road and there would be no more traffic. They would stop there for at least an hour just having a general conversation about everything in general. I remember as, as a young guy thinking to myself, this isn't terribly productive. But when I look back, I just think to myself, what an idyllic time that was. The day's moved on a bit further, of course, and it's quite dull. There's a bit of a glow from the direction of Sellafield, but we won't, <laughs> won't go into that. But um, let's talk a little bit about the Herbert Sheep Breeders Association. It has an association with Mrs Healis and is still a significant part of your life because you're chairman. Yeah, I am. I'm chairman of the Herbert Sheep Breeders Association. And actually, my father, when he was a young child, a young lad, met Beatrix Potter at Ennerdale Show. Most people know her as Beatrix Potter. She was Mrs. Healy's, really. Uh, my dad's memory of her was she was a very scary old lady dressed in Victorian clothes. And she was at Ennerdale Show because she was judging the Herdwick Sheep classes. So she was obviously quite well respected by her male peers. Mrs. Healy's was actually president-elect in 1943... She would have been president in 1944, but she died before she was able to take up the post of president of the Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association. The Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association still flourishes. Many women involved in the Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association. We uh, reckon we've got about 260 Herdwick farms left in the Lake District. The Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association is something that actually brings those farms together. It gives them some sense of identity, Many of the members now are from all distant parts of the country, all the way from Cornwall to Shetland. We have members. Yeah, it's quite quite an honour, actually, to be chairman of an organisation like a Sheep Breed Association. I feel honoured, privileged, whatever, that the other breeders felt it was appropriate to elect me. Uh, we've heard a good deal from you today about the many challenges that face the hefting, the breed and your way of life. Are there any sort of silver linings or moments of hope that you sense? Yeah, there's a lot to be optimistic about, I think. Um, one thing that always strikes me is the number of younger people that want to be involved in Herdwick Sheep. There's this conversation goes on all the time, isn't it, about the average age of a farmer being about 59 or something. I think that's an absolute myth, personally. We have huge numbers of younger people involved with Herdwick Sheep Breeding. I think there are tremendous positives in as much as some of the people involved in Herdwick Sheep Breeding are some of the nicest people. And I would challenge anybody who challenged me. We have some of the most skilled stock people in the world involved in Herdwick Sheep Breeding. Not simply because they're very good at identifying a good sheep, but you consider the place that these sheep live. You know, we've got Herdwick sheep on Scorfeld Pike, on Helvellyn, on Great Gable. It's not as straightforward as getting up in the morning and the sheep's outside your front door. Although farming's changed massively and much of it's been mechanised, you can't mechanise getting these sheep off these fells. I've got a dog here sitting on my foot. In my hand. <laughs> yeah. This is as close as we get to mechanisation, you know. It's a lot of individuals coming together to the greater good and... Uh, that doesn't happen much in society now, does it? Yeah. 
you know. Absolutely. If government support systems would give them the chance, we can keep this whole system continuing. The sheep will go on forever. If they give the farmers the opportunity to do it, Herdwick sheep farming will go on forever. Only very recently, I think it was a fortnight ago, is the Estelle Show, which is one of the premier events in the calendar of Herdwick sheep. And there, I gather, the world champion Herdwick is um, judged. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Will? Estelle Show was originally established as a place where all the farmers took all their tups in late September. So they took all the rams along to Estelle Show and farmers basically swapped them so we were exchanging bloodlines without a lot of money taking place but it then became a show where everyone not only took along their tubs for hire but they also took along some of their sheep and it became a competition and recently since uh, I think about four years ago Eskdale show judged the inaugural world champion Herdwick competition so yeah it's a very important event it's also somewhere where if you haven't seen your neighbours for, you know, six months, you haven't seen them since shearing time, possibly, clipping time, it's nice to meet up again and have a couple of beers. Might I just clarify who was the winner for 2023? Yeah, 2023, the world champion Herdwick was owned by David Harrison from Brother Elkle, which is an Eskdale farm. If you want an interpretation of Brother Ilkeld, it's the bothy of Brother Ilkle. Yeah, ah. it was another mulk. We pronounce it Butterilkut. Yes. It's a valley head farm, one of the pivotal sort of farms of the, the Herdwick uh, system. And David's got some very good shape. He has got some very good shape, yeah. Well, that's been fascinating. We'll just wander back up to the farm and have a, a few last thoughts and quick fire questions. We've wended our way back to the farmhouse, Farthwaite, and uh, it's given me a moment to do what we often do to our guests, draw out quick-fire questions that reflect on their own sense of connection. And my first one is, what would be your first Lake District memory? I guess the one that probably sticks in my brain as much as anything is, as a very small child, in my father's arms to some extent, uh, going around the lambing fields in the early part of the year. Seeing new life on a a nice uh, spring evening. Fantastic, yeah. Your family own parts of Great Bourne and Stalin Dodd and so on, but have you a particular favourite fell? I really quite like Great Bourne and Stalin Dodd, not because we own them, just because I spent a hell of a lot of time up there doing different things, but Pillar's always been a sort of something that I've always had in my mind. We could look out of the farmyard and look up the valley and look at the great step of Pillar Rock, the mountain behind it, yeah, the fell behind it. You're a fellman, but you're not a climber, though, are you? I did used to be a rock climber, yeah. I did quite a lot of rock climbing, actually, and uh, it might have been another career path for me. I did have the opportunity to become a professional mountain guide, but I chose farming. I think the memory of lamb and sheep stuck with me. Yeah, I have climbed Pillar Rock a time or two, yeah. You mentioned earlier on about your uh, delectation of uh, having a couple of pints when you met your good farming friends. Have you got a favourite pub? Um, yeah, quite a lot of pubs. I've got a lot of memories about pubs and being in pubs. But I think my favourite one is the one that I happened to be in at the time. <laughs> uh, I guess if I had to actually identify one in particular, it would be, be the Fox and Hounds in Ennerdale Bridge where I... Uh, 
spent many a happy hour with the other local farmers, learning learning from the older guys about uh, how to do things and uh, just having good social, jovial evenings. Yeah, great stuff. Have you a favourite book about Lake District or Cumbria? The various editions of the Lake District Shepherd's Guide. Not only is it a record of sheep earmarks, but it's also a record of who was on which particular farm in that particular era. And it's really interesting to see how some of the families have moved from farm to farm and settled down in in one particular place, or families have disappeared, and uh, it's interesting. Beatrix Potter, let's be honest, as a kid, you know, as a child, Beatrix Potter's books were fantastic, weren't they? Have you a particular Cumbrian hero or heroine, dead or alive? Right. Well, I think my heroes would be all the current Herdwick Braders, male or female, all of them, every one of them. Every one of them is a hero to me. I would consider all the guys that I learnt me tread from, they would be my heroes, I'm not going to name them. But I, I'm not a great one for, for heroes and heroines. I like to appreciate the people that I know and have known without identifying them as individuals. I think it's, it's important that we don't start putting people in boxes. It's a collective thing, it's it a is. collective knowledge and a collective yeah. commitment. Yeah. We're standing in a very wonderful landscape, I know. Perhaps you have a particular view that you love I do. I really enjoy, as I mentioned earlier, I really enjoy standing in the Hollins farmyard where my son's now living and farming, looking up the Annadale Valley on a beautiful either sunrise or sunset. Fantastic, fantastic, one of the best views in the world. Then again, if I lived in a different valley, I would have probably thought that was the best view as well, wouldn't I? When the time comes and your ashes need to be scattered, is there one place that you feel most appropriate to you? I'm not a very sentimental person, really, and uh, having experienced plenty of death throughout my career, sheep and dogs and things, all things that I've been very attached to. My dad was very keen that his ashes were spread on an area of land that has a fantastic view up the Annadale Valley. I would probably join him there. It's a little place called Lancera, you know, on the farm that we own. It was interesting, actually, when I uh, went with my two sisters to sprinkle my dad's ashes on the top of Lancera. Some of it went down my welly. My dad would have found that amusing. Yeah. Journey's end, we're back in this very handsome farmyard, still looking out of the great sweep of the common there. The uh, clouds stubborn on the tops, there's no views to be had up the top there, Mark. I always think it's a really wild part of Cumbria here, and Will's back to work, right? I mean, he spared us his two hours or whatever it's been. He's an active farmer, it's in his blood. He's a man who really cares about the breed and the setting and the lifestyle and the community that he has great hope for. There are some real challenges for the breed, and I hope we've drawn that out in this conversation. It can get quite technical talking about this stuff, but there was some hope as well, right? And actually, if we switch back to the last time we were out with somebody who's got a great deal of affinity with the Herdwick, which is James Rebanks, 40 episodes ago, but (laughs) he said about that fire in the belly, didn't he, of young people and Will saying exactly the same thing. There's a lot of hope to be had by young people who have a great passion for this breed. Yeah, and this is it. The one you one lamb system really does work and has worked for hundreds of years. 
that interrelationship between the farm, the common and the breed, you mess around with that, it all kind of falls apart quite quickly. All that intensive breeding that happened at these valley head farms that we spoke about gets undone within decades. Unfortunately, as with a lot of these things, there aren't any easy answers, but we should at least acknowledge the complexity in some of these decisions. Um, I mean, I find it, I suppose from an intellectual point of view, really quite fascinating because mm. of that complexity. But I guess what we're also brought out is we're talking about people's lives, certainly livelihoods. Far be it from me to plug my own books, but at Will has a lovely uh, chapter in Amy Bateman's 40 Farms where we really go into a lot of detail about some of the stuff he's spoken about today. Our regular housekeeping mark, we're on it, episode number... 111. For 110 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. If you would like to support us, you can do so in one of three ways. You can buy our guidebooks. Six guidebooks, another one in production for Keswick and the Keswick area. Secondly, please do recommend us. If you like these podcasts, recommend us to your family and friends. That way we climb up those algorithms. And thirdly, you can support us on Patreon. For as little as £2 a month, you can keep this ship afloat. And we are very grateful for your support. You can find out how to support us via Patreon. Again, countrystride.co.uk. Well, that's it. We're signing off from a very claggy Kinnerside Common as night falls. We'll say goodbye from us for today and we'll see you on next fortnight's Country Stride.